Thank you, Jason. I love to hear Jason play. I'm grateful for his ministry to us and grateful for our students tonight. What a marvelous job you've done in leading us in worship. And we are delighted to worship with you and to be led by you in worship tonight. I love the words of the song that Jason was playing. Our choir sang them this morning, Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In some ways, that is the thesis of the book of Leviticus. This is a great night. Randy knows how long I've been waiting to preach from Leviticus. I've always wanted to preach Leviticus 13 about the cleansing of leprosy of the scalp. Somehow I felt it to be autobiographical and Someone suggested a a song about leprosy for our special music based on the tune of the Beatles yesterday, Uh, you know, leprosy, I'm not half the man I used to be or something like that, but I'm going to move beyond that because I need to quickly, and uh, as I get to Leviticus, I'm reminded that it is a very powerful word from God to His people then in Israel and to His people today in the church. And I wonder, what do you think of when you think of Leviticus? When I think of Leviticus, I think of priests, I think of laws, I think specifically of casistic laws. Uh, apodictic laws are those like we saw in, in the book of Exodus, the thou shalts and thou shalt not. Sort of absolute laws for all people for all time. But casistic laws, as the name would suggest, have more to do with specific cases, specific functions that the Israelites would face. It's here that we learn that we should not eat insects. I mean, this is helpful. This is helpful for life. It's where we learn not to eat the lizards that run around in the garden. And reading it this week, I was reminded of Ian Frazier's Lamentations of the Father. I've shared some of this with you before, but let me share a little bit more of it. He has this uh, Laws of the Forbidden Places in the Household. Of the beasts of the field and of the fishes of the sea and of all the foods that are acceptable in my sight, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the hoofed animals broiled or ground into burgers, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cloven hoofed animal, plain or with cheese, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cereal grains, of the corn and of the wheat and of the oats and of all the cereals that are of bright color and unknown provenance, you may eat but not in the living room. Of quiescently frozen dessert and of all frozen after-meal treats, you may eat, but absolutely not in the living room. Of the juices and other beverages, yes, even of those in sippy cups, you may drink, but not in the living room. Neither may you carry such therein. Indeed, when you reach the place where the living room carpet begins, of any food or beverage there, you may not eat, neither may you drink, but if you are sick and you are lying down and watching something, then you may eat in the living room. Laws when at the table, when you are seated at your high chair or in a chair such as a greater person might use, keep your legs and feet below you as they were. Neither raise up your knees nor place your feet upon the table, for that is an abomination to me. Yes, even when you have an interesting bandage to show, your feet upon the table are an abomination and worthy of rebuke. Drink your milk as it is given to you. Neither use it on any of your utensils, nor fork, nor knife, nor spoon, for that is not what they are for. And if you dip your blocks in the milk and lick it off, you will be sent away. When you have drunk, let the empty cup there remain upon the table. Do not bite upon its edge, and by your teeth hold it in your face in order to make noises in it sounding like a duck, for you will be sent away. See, these are helpful things 
when you chew your food, keep your mouth closed until you have swallowed. And do not open it to show your brother or your sister what is within. I say to you, do not so, even if your brother or sister has done the same to you. Eat your food only. Do not eat that which is not food. Neither raise the table between your jaws, nor use the raiment of the table to wipe your lips. I say again to you, do not touch it. Leave it as is. And though your stick of carrot does indeed resemble a marker, draw not with it upon the table, even in pretend, for we do not do that. That is why. And though the pieces of broccoli are very like small trees, do not stand them upright to make a forest, because we do not do that. That is why. Sit just as I have told you. Do not lean to one side or the other, nor slide down until you are nearly slid away. Heed me, for if you sit like that, your hair will go into the syrup. And now behold, even as I have said, it has come to pass. Bite not, lest you be cast into quiet time. Leave the cat alone, for what has the cat done that you should so afflict it with tape? And hum not the humming in your nose as I read, nor stand between the light and the book. Indeed, you will drive me to madness. Well, those are examples of casistic laws that we might have in our own houses. Now, listen to Leviticus chapter 11, because Leviticus offers us more than just minuscule and meticulous rules. Here we learn about relationship that is appropriate with a God who is holy. And I want you to read with me from Leviticus chapter 11. Would you stand with me? Leviticus 11, 44 to 45. I've titled this message, Holiness. If I titled it on Friday, I would have titled it, um, What Do I Know About Holy? It's a song um, that is sung by Addison Road. But Leviticus chapter 11, verse 41 says, Every creature that moves about on the ground is detestable. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves about on the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is detestable. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And then in chapter 20, verse 26, what may look to be just a a repeat of that statement, but there is just one phrase that is added which aids us as we study tonight. It says in Leviticus 20, verse 26, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. You've heard that part, but listen to this. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If Exodus tells us where we are to worship, Leviticus tells us in some ways how we are to worship, why we are to worship, and it emphasizes things that we don't pay a lot of attention to these days, things like the offerings that the Israelites were to make. In fact, the first seven chapters talk about five different offerings and how they are to be uh, given to the Lord, offerings like uh, the cereal offering and the burnt offering 
and the peace offering, which may be offered by anybody at any time, and then, more specifically, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And then it talks about the priests and the requirements for the priests and some sons of Aaron who got in a lot of trouble because they didn't live as priests should live and do what priests should do. There are lots of teachings about holiness and sacrifice and priests, and all of these things, as we read them, seem foreign to us. We wonder, do these things really apply to people like us who live today? And when we read these verses, we understand that perhaps the central theme of Leviticus is this theme of holiness, not just twice, as I've read to you, but in four places here in chapter 11, then in in chapter 19, verse 2, and chapter 20, verse 7, and chapter 20, verse 26. In four different places, the Lord says to them, after these long summaries of rules, you shall be holy unto me, for I, your God, am holy." God wanted His people to be holy. And I hope this makes sense tonight, but if you think about it, the whole book of Genesis emphasizes in creation that God made us as people in His very own image. That's uh, chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we see that image of God in humankind marred by the choice of sin. And from there, there is this uh, downward uh, spinning cycle of, of sin down to chapter 12. And then in chapter 12, we see God setting apart a family for himself, an Abraham's family. And we read about Abraham's family and, and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and all of Jacob's sons and his daughter Dinah. We read all about that. And then we read about Joseph and the blessing of the kids and the grandkids. And then in Exodus, we discover that family has become a nation. And that nation's in a lot of trouble. And the book of Exodus tells us the story of God delivering His people, that nation, from Egypt and making them His own. But imagine traveling with hundreds of thousands of people through a desert for 40 years. Lots of specific, special circumstances relationally came up in that time. And and there had to be some guiding principle about the way people would behave. And here's the guiding principle. God says, I made you in my image. That image was marred by sin. And I am determined to bring you back to restore my image in you. And if you want to know what that image looks like, that image is holiness, otherness, being of a different category. God says, because I'm a different kind of God than the gods that everybody else worships, I want you to be a different kind of people than all the other peoples of the earth. God wanted to make His people like Himself. And that one characteristic of God that rose above every other was the holiness of God. You shall be holy unto me, for I, your God, am holy. You understand that uh, God's holiness is uh, intrinsic. It's just who He is. Our holiness, on the other hand, is derivative. We derive our holiness from God. He creates that holiness in us by setting us apart for Himself. And we see in chapter 11, and then again in chapter 22, specific reasons that God is trying to make us holy. First, He is trying very hard to make us like Himself. Now, there's a great effort, I think, in our world uh, after God created us in His image for us to sort of return the favor and recreate Him in our own image, but that would be a grave mistake. He wants to make us holy because He Himself is holy. It is the very nature of God Himself, and He wants us more than anything to be like Him. So wouldn't it make sense for people like us to um, contemplate 
the holiness of God. Just to focus for a while every morning, just to lean our elbows on the windowsill of heaven and take a a long, deep, lasting look at the holiness of God. Because when we become holy, we share in the very nature of God Himself who is holy. Why should we be holy? Because God is holy. God is, first notice, characteristically holy. That is, it's who He is. The word in Hebrew is kadosh, set apart, different, holy. When people see the holiness of God in the Bible, like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, inevitably they tremble. Inevitably they recognize, not only is God that, but I am something altogether different. The image of God has been lost, and Isaiah recognizes that he not only sees it in himself, but he sees that he's from a people of unclean lips as well. And when I read these verses this week, I was reminded of Donald McCullough's expression, trivializing the holy, or Vance Havner's image of the uh, missionary who happened in the African uh, wilderness upon some children who looked like they were playing marbles, only to discover that those marbles were actually diamonds, and they had no idea. Such is the holiness of God that if we take it for granted, if we take it lightly, we do so at our own peril. And it comes back to that song by Addison Road, that, that relatively new song that has captured my attention. It captured our daughter's attention on the radio the other day. She was asking me about it. But listen to these words. I made you promises a thousand times. I tried to hear from heaven, but I talked the whole time. I think I made you too small. They're singing to God and say, I think I made you too small. I never feared you at all. If you touched my face, would I know you? Looked into my eyes, could I behold you? What do I know of you who spoke me into motion? Where have I ever stood but the shore along your ocean? Are you fire? Are you fury? Are you sacred? Are you beautiful? What do I know? What do I know of holy? And Oswald Chambers, of my utmost for his highest fame, dared to ask, am I becoming more and more in love with the God who is holy or with my own false conception of an amiable being who says, oh well, sin doesn't matter that much. God is not a senile benevolence who winks at our sin. Jonathan Edwards wrote, A true love of God must begin with a delight in His holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without holiness. God is characteristically holy. Go on to see He is completely holy. That's why the angels whom Isaiah saw when he saw God high and lifted up in the temple were singing, holy, holy, holy. Not once holy, not twice holy, but three times holy because He is perfectly holy. Because God could not be more holy than He is. God is completely, utterly holy. And you say, well, What does this mean? Well, that's why Isaiah refers to God 25 times in the book of Isaiah as the Holy One of Israel. It means, of course, that God is sinless. But it means more than that. It means that God is not capricious like the idols that people create. That God is other. That He is of an entirely different type which defies all the categories of idols and gods that people have ever worshipped. He's not like, for instance, the Greek God that we read about in mythology. He is holy and He is loving. He is utterly different. And immediately when Isaiah recognized the holiness of God, he recognized his own unholiness. In 1949, and I say that because it could have been written in 2009, Jim Elliott wrote, 
I am dwelling in a generation to whom nothing is holy. Sacredness is an aspect people never assume toward anything. They revel in bald frankness which enervates moral consciousness. I feel it affecting me. You ever feel like you live in a world where people think that nothing is sacred and nothing is holy, where, where comedians will make light of the most holy things in this world? Oh, to be holy, Jim Elliott wrote, this one who gave his life trying to reach the Aka Indians. Oh, to be holy, just to sense for a moment that I have somehow, however small, simulated some measure of your character, Lord Jesus. A word from another author spoke to me tonight. Holiness is not austerity or gloom. Holiness is the offspring of conscious, present Peace, with a capital P, the peace of God in our lives creates holiness. God is characteristically holy. He's completely holy. Can I tell you, He is contagiously holy. That is, we derive our holiness from Him. We see this in Jesus, especially what we might call transformational holiness. Here's the difference. The Pharisees thought they were holy, but Jesus was actually holy. And here's how you see the difference. The Pharisees refused to touch any unclean thing, but Jesus refuses to leave any unclean thing unclean. He transforms it. He makes it holy. This is informative about our mission in the world. It is not our job to point our long fingers at the world and say, look what the world has come to, but rather it is our mission, like Jesus, being the presence of Christ in this world, being salt and being light, to be transforming agents so that when we see darkness, we don't just complain about it, we illumine it. And when the world becomes insipid and distasteful, it is our responsibility to be a preservative element like salt is in food, to add the flavor to a world that has lost its bearings and its way. In the Scriptures, what we realize is whatever you worship, you inevitably become like that. Listen to Psalm 115. You know, the first verse of that is, I love to quote, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and your faithfulness. But he goes on to say, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. But their idols, by contrast, he says, are silver and gold made by the hands of men. All you have to do is, is go to my, uh, to my uh, tailor downstairs from Bally's over just up the road to see exactly what he's talking about. Their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And then listen to what he says in verse 8 of Psalm 115. Those who make them will be like them. You want to serve an idol that has no power on earth, that is speechless and senseless and tasteless? Go ahead, but just understand, you will become like whatever you worship. So if you decide you're going to worship the stock market, then when the stock market falls, believe me when I say, so will you. If you want to worship sensuality, and you enter into that pattern in this world, you will sow the wind, and you will reap the whirlwind. 
You may choose to worship any of the idols that people have ever worshipped, but the truth is you will become like what you worship. You know the old, if you're, if you're married long enough, you begin to look like your spouse. I'm still hoping this is going to kick in for me at some point. Or, or maybe the more crass, you know, people and their dogs. So these tall, thin people walk around with these tall, thin poodles on the bayou. It's just amazing to me. Well, it turns out that not people and their dogs, but people and their gods match that we become like what we worship. I was reading about uh, uh, the uh, uh, agnostic, uh, dyslexic insomniac who laid awake at night and wondered whether or not there was a dog. Well, you become like the gods that you worship. If you worship a senseless god, you yourself will become senseless. But here's the question. What if we become like the true God? What would it be like? We would be holy. The Bible says we would be holy. I remember years ago, I went with a group of men to Washington, D.C., and we sort of uh, filled the National Mall there, a Promise Keepers rally, and uh, there was preaching and singing and, and lots of men. And then the songs continued on the subways and on the buses and in the airport as we were coming home. And, and I, I stood with a group of men in a, in a bus, and they began to sing, and they sang, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness, holiness is what... I need holiness. Holiness is what you want from me. Well, that song captures it. The more we contemplate His holiness, the more we will consecrate ourselves to the Holy One of Israel. We cannot simultaneously live for Him and live for ourselves. So we begin by contemplating His holiness, and then we consecrate ourselves to be holy before the Lord. And I want to show you this again in chapter 20, verse 26, that second verse that I read. Why are we holy? You shall be holy unto me. Why? This is quoted again in 1 Peter chapter 2. Why should we be holy to the Lord? Because He Himself is holy. Why should we be holy to the Lord? Here it is. Because God says, I have set you apart. So not only when we are holy do we show the world the holiness of God, but when we, when we are holy, we share in the very holiness of God Himself and we make that holiness apparent to the world around us. Just before he gives the rules for the priests there in chapter 21, he says, I have set you apart as my own. To be holy is to belong to God, to uh, give him our complete allegiance, to love him more than we love anything else in this world. God said, I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. God sets apart the priesthood for his exclusive purposes. He receives their sacrifices as worthy of him. And he says to them in, back in Exodus chapter 19, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Israel, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But what we see in the New Testament is that God begins to apply that to the church. And he not only wants Israel to be holy, but he wants the church to be holy. And he will even discipline us to bring that holiness in our lives. So Hebrews 12.10 says God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God wants us to share in his holiness and show that holiness to the world. I read a survey by Barna conducted a few years ago in which they asked people uh, if they believed that it were possible for a person to become holy in this world. In the United States, 73% of people in general, 76% of believers, three in four, if you will, said, we believe it's possible to live a holy life in this world. But when asked a second question, how many of you know somebody who's actually holy? Only 50% said they knew that somebody was holy. And when they asked, how many of you are holy? 
Well, it dropped all the way down to a quarter of the general population, really 21%, and about 29% of believers said they believed they were holy. What do you think? Is it possible to be holy? We, we tend to think of holiness as being holier than thou, those people who sort of look down on other people, but we see in Jesus that Jesus is the opposite of that, that He wants to redeem people who are not holy. He wants to draw them to Himself. He wants to make them like Himself. God wants to do that. It must be possible for us to be holy, or else Jesus would not have asked us to do that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you shall be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word is teleos, complete. You, you become what God intended for you to be. And God wouldn't ask us to do something unless He intended for it to happen in our lives. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. No, you know better, He says. Just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Do you know that word holy? And in English comes from the same word as whole. It is to be complete. It is to be, as David Crowder sings, holy yours, Lord. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy yours, Lord, by being holy. We look at that and say, well, there are no longer priests or sacrifices anymore. That's Old Testament stuff. That's Leviticus. But if we say that, we betray our misunderstanding of the New Testament because the New Testament talks a lot about priests and sacrifices. And when the New Testament talks about priests, it's talking about us. And when it talks about sacrifices, it's not talking about something people did in ancient times. It's talking about the way we live our lives every day. We have become a holy, royal priesthood. Remember in Exodus 28, 36, and 39, 30, the high priest wore a signet which said, engraved in gold, holiness to the Lord. They knew they belonged to God. But Zechariah envisioned a day in Zechariah 14.20 when every common household item would have that same engraving on it, holy to the Lord. I mean to say that somehow we have to take what God has given us and bring it to the people so that people will see who God is. As, as Cromwell ran out of, uh, out of things uh, to use in the war back in England, uh, he decided to melt down the big statues of the saints. He said it's time to melt down the saints and put them into circulation. And God would love to make us holy and then put us in circulation in the world. So 1 Peter 2, 5 and 6 says, Jesus, as we come to Jesus, the living stone, we are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He's not talking to Israel. He's talking to the church. You are to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice. You, we don't kill animals anymore. Thank God we don't kill animals anymore. But we offer spiritual sacrifices, as the writer of Hebrews says, the sacrifice of praise we offer to God, the sacrifice of lives that are obedient to God in holiness. We are priests and we become, as he says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That is, we belong to the king, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, a people belonging to God. In holiness, we are priests to each other. So we hold each other accountable to God's standard. God is the gold standard of holiness. And the question we must ask each other in the way we talk to each other, the way we relate to each other is, is that worthy of a God like ours? Does that honor Him? That's why the writers in the New Testament will say, don't get involved in trivial talk. Don't Make light of things. Don't sit in the seat of mockers, Psalm 1 says. Don't get wrapped up. As Jim Elliott said, not only does the world I live in not see anything as sacred, but I feel it sort of affecting me. 
It's one thing um, for God to take us out of the world, but it's another thing for God to take the world out of us. And we confess our sins to each other and we live in holiness. And why does God want us to be holy? Because, Because whatever is holy is healthy. It's the way God intended for life to be. So that we would be priests to Him and beyond that, that we would become living sacrifices to God. Remember Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. One little girl said she liked Santa Claus better than Jesus because you have to be good for Santa only at Christmas, but for Jesus you have to be good all the time. Well, she's right. But what does that goodness look like? One Christian thinker said that the church wants renewal. Renewal doesn't mean changing a habit and a few prayers. Renewal is faithfulness to the Spirit. A spirit which seeks holiness by means of a poor and humble life. The exercise of sincere and patient love. Spontaneous sacrifice. Just when you see a need, meet that need. Generosity of heart which finds its expression in purity and candor. On the basis of our sacrifices, we begin to understand that God's forgiveness empowers us to forgive. I told our staff this week about a friend of mine who told me more of his story this week. He said... um, I had a granddaughter whom I loved, and she lived in Galveston, and uh, one day two boys were having a fight on the landing of her apartment building, and the one boy was pushing the other, and the other pulled a gun, and when the boy pushed him, the gun accidentally went off. It didn't hit the person. It went through the apartment door and straight to my granddaughter's neck, and she fell to the ground, and when we found her, we didn't even know, nobody knew what had happened, but when we found her... Uh, She was placed on life support for a period of time, and for days, he said, I kept vigil with my family there in this intensive care waiting room. He said, I had a key to the church because I like to go and pray at 5 o'clock in the morning. And he said, as I was going up to the hospital one morning, the Lord said to me, don't go to the hospital, go to the church. You need to pray. And he thought to himself, why should I go and pray? I need to go and take care of my granddaughter, but the Lord revealed to him as he was praying there at the church that God could not work in his life until he would be able to forgive, until he was willing to forgive the young man who accidentally shot this beautiful granddaughter with whom he had this very special relationship. And that day in that hospital, he said he decided he would forgive that young man. You think, um, well, it's easy to say. Well, let me tell you what he did. He testified on behalf of the young man so that the young man did not go to prison. The young man was given probation because of the testimony of the grandfather of the daughter who was shot. Now that is living our Christianity. He told me about a friend of his in Bastrop where he moved after Galveston. Um, There was a lady who lived across the street and she was a little bit uh, insane. And when he would come outside, she would curse him. He said, no man likes to be cursed by anybody. And he said, there were times when I wanted to defend myself, but the Lord said to me, you are to serve her. And there came a time when she needed a a hip replacement surgery. And because she had alienated not only all of her neighbors and all of her friends, but all of her family as well, there was nobody to take her to the hospital in Austin. So my friend took her to the hospital, and he went up to visit her every day. And he made that journey, and when he would get in the hospital room, she would curse him every day. And when that surgery was over and she had recovered and was back home, she needed another hip replacement surgery, and he took her up there for that as well. He said he was in Bastrop recently. He pulled up in front of her house. She was out in the front yard. He stepped out, and she cursed him immediately. Not one time did she ever thank him for what he did for her. And you say, well, who, 
Who lives like that? And I would say to you, if you want to be like the God who is holy, who is of a different category, then take a long look at Jesus and see Him on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when you and I begin not just to read that and love that, but live that, we can be part of a revolution in this world. We can make a difference. When we start loving the way that Jesus loved, the world will see that our God is different from the gods of materialism and sensuality. But I'll tell you one thing. You can't claim the name of Christ and then bow down at the same altars that the world around us bows down at. Christianity is not just a better way to live the good life. Christianity is about God making us good and changing us so that we are virtually unrecognizable from who we used to be. Because God in His grace, has made us new. And I challenge you this week to be holy to the Lord because the Lord is holy. Troy Burley went to worship with our friend Carrie Tillman. Remember Pastor Tillman who preached for us not long ago? He went to his church. He said, Dwayne, you've heard Pastor Tillman preach at HBU and you've heard him preach at Tallawood, but you've never heard him preach till you hear him preach in his own pulpit. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, it was fire and thunder. It was amazing. And he said, at the end, well, I ran into Pastor Tillman this week, and I said, listen, if you preach like that when my people are there, they won't come back and hear me preach. You've got to stop doing that. And he said to me, well, he's not talking about my preaching, but what happened at the end? He said, I was preaching a sermon called I Choose God. And at the end, one of our young women came down in the invitation, and she said, I used to choose drugs. She testified to the whole church. She said, I liked drugs, but drugs didn't like me. So she said, I tried relationships with boys, and I found that they played games. And I tried relationships with girls, and I found that they played games as well. So, Pastor, I came forward this morning to say, I choose Him. I choose God. And it was a moment of great power in that congregation when one of their members who had once served the Lord but had not served the Lord in a long time came forward and said, I choose God over everything else in the world. Listen to this. The Spirit of holiness, the one we call the Holy Spirit, the God who created the world, has chosen us not just to experience the benefits of salvation, but to live the responsibilities of salvation, to become a holy people, a holy priesthood, to give our lives as living sacrifices to Him. And this God who has chosen us is waiting for us to turn our backs on the things that do not finally fulfill or satisfy and come to Him and say, God who has chosen me today, I choose you. And God says, you shall be holy unto me, for I, your God, am holy. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your holiness. We confess, Lord, with Addison Road. We, we don't, what do we know about holy? We profess to be experts in God and the things of God, but Lord, I sense tonight we've only ever stood on the shore of the ocean of your holiness. But tonight, Lord, we confess that we want to know you better and to know that you have chosen us to be your holy, royal priesthood, a people who belong to you, a people of your own possession, causes us, Lord, to say, because you have chosen us, yes, yes Lord, we are willing to be chosen and we choose you. 
over every lesser thing, over every other idol in this world. We choose you. In Jesus' name. Amen.